Hi, I'm Chip Sutter, and my partner Alyssa has abandoned me this week. Just like Matt Smith in The Doctor, The Widow, and The Wardrobe, and The Snowmen, I'm on my own. So, I'm bringing in some special help to fulfill the Christmas master plan this week. Deb Stanish, moderator of the Verity Podcast. Plus, Toby Haydock joins me to remember groundbreaking classic director Patty Russell on the November 7th edition of This Week in Time Travel. Thanks for joining me this week. Alyssa Frankie is on assignment, as they say, if by on assignment you mean having some wonderful downtime with her mother and grandmother in our nation's capital. Mothers are very important, as you'll recall when we get into our Christmas episode reviews later on in the podcast. But first, some news, and this time the news this week is sad, as we've had two classic Doctor Who luminaries leave us. First up, I want to mention the death of Dudley Simpson, who scored a staggering number of Doctor Who stories from Planet of the Giants to Shada. He was utterly prolific, the very soundtrack to four Doctors. We hope to have a special remembrance of him on next week's episode, but for now, we remember Dudley Simpson, born in 1922 and passed away in Australia on November 4th. To help me talk about another pivotal Doctor Who creator who passed away this week, Let's call on an old friend and an occasional guest on my old podcast, Two Minute Time Lord. With me right now is Toby Haydock, author, actor, comedian, and unofficial Doctor Who biographer slash eulogist, I guess. You've written so many pieces uh, for The Guardian. Uh, when Doctor Who creators and ha- have left us, you've seemed to be right there helping uh, the general public sort of make sense of who it is uh, that they've lost. Uh, Toby, welcome to This Week in Time Travel. Welcome. A friend of mine, funnily enough, a, a comedian called Michael Legg, who's also a Doctor Who fan, but he's a very d- grumpy comedian. Actually, ironically, in terms of what you just said, about three days ago, put up a Facebook um, status going, who's going to write Toby Haydock's obituary, <laughs> which oh. I did think was quite funny. <laughs> uh, uh, at, at this rate, maybe you, you'll, need to, you'll need to do it yourself. You'll have to come back for it. Yeah, uh, or maybe I should just do it in advance. Yeah. So we're here to talk about uh, Patty Russell, uh, who passed away at the age of 89 in the last week. Uh, Very, very important uh, Doctor Who director, but also a pioneer in British television. Yeah, she was, I believe, the first female floor manager at the BBC. Um, She wasn't the first female director. She's predated by a couple. And then then she came up at the same time as another. But, um, you know, we're still talking, you know, you could count on the fingers of one hand and, uh, and let's not underestimate just how how uh, patriarchal, I mean, if you think about the industry now still has issues to address. Imagine what it was like, you know, when she was working at the BBC in the early 1950s. Um, and she was a, a trailblazer. And, that, and, and you know, the, the fact that we know her as Paddy is no accident. She, she did transmogrify Patricia into Paddy uh, to the extent, one so that, you know, so that it wouldn't count against her. And, and uh, the result of that was that quite often crews um, who were expecting, uh, you know, a male director to walk through the door, um, were slightly surprised when it was, when Paddy turned out to be a woman. Um, so yeah, she was a, she was a trailblazer and she, and she, you know, she knew the industry uh, very well cause she, she, she started at the bottom and worked her way up really. It sounds like it required enormous tenacity. Uh, what kind of a director was she? Well, she always said she was an actor's director because she trained as an actress. She went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and she was going to, to act. Um, and then she, typical, <laughs> the bluntness, and you go, so what, what changed your, you know, she didn't go, oh, well, you know, I suddenly decided my vocation was, she, she found out they got more money in, in stage management. So she, <laughs> so she went over and did that instead. Um, she had taken a stage management part of her drama course to, to because her dad didn't want her to uh, to do any that um, uh, didn't want to do an acting course at all, so she did a bit of stage management just to appease him, and it stood her in good stead. So because she trained as an actress, she empathised with act- actors, she communicated with them well, and that's, uh, you know, 
especially when she was a floor manager and things and having to relay messages from Rudolf Cartier, who was notoriously formidable, you know, she had to be precise and to the point, but also make actors not feel like they were, they were cattle or, um, you know, she, she knew how to make them feel at ease. And I think actors appreciated that. And it, it shows why she always got very good casts. And in fact, the first thing she ever cast for television as a director had an extraordinary cast. And it was because it was all actors that she'd worked with as a, as a production assistant who, who knew she was, you know, very good. So she was less interested in monsters and, and more interested in, in people. And I think that shows in her stories as well. She directed four stories in Doctor Who, The Massacre, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, Pyramids of Mars and Horror of Fang Rock. That shows quite the range in terms of Doctor Who genre. Well, I like the fact that she's not, she can't be typecast. I was talking to somebody the other day about her Z Cars episodes, which is, is not my sphere of excellence. I was just saying, you know, f f fill me in about those. And he was going, well, you know, she wasn't asked to direct particular types of episode. You know, she would do some that had big casts, some that had small casts, some that were light and funny, some that were, you know, so she was very versatile in that sense because, you know, there are people like, say, Douglas Camfield, who we associate with sort of, you know, heavy drama and, and dramatic action. And, and that was his forte. And that's not to denigrate him in other areas because he was good at other stuff as well but Paddy seemed to have a, have a broader template although they all again are stories where character is important where uh, as, as much of the drama is Im imported by the atmosphere and the acting as it is by sort of action or particularly her bugbear special effects and you know this is she, she was honest about this when she was um she was still with us she you know she, she the reason she directed invasion of the dinosaurs was because she was offered death to the daleks and said i don't want to direct tin pots tin metal dustbins so they gave her the one that instead had got rubber dinosaurs right which are which are you know acknowledged as not being perhaps uh, the strongest special effect in doctor who's history although i actually think a lot of the model shots are very good it's it's integrating them into the the rest of the action that it becomes a problem but that sadly means I think we overlook sometimes with Invasion of the Dinosaurs that it's a great conspiracy thriller with, you know, four down the guest cast, you've got Martin Jarvis because, you know, actors like Martin Jarvis were happy to work for Paddy Russell even if the part was, was not necessarily particularly good. So uh, and it's a, there's, a, there's a fabulous cast in Invasion of the Dinosaurs and it is actually – and it was quite wise of Barry Letts in a way because the story is – really about it's about the people it's about the golden age it's about what we will do to try and make our world better and that you know nostalgia for something that didn't actually exist is uh, is a dangerous thing that's that, an episode that appears to have sort of risen in sort of received fan wisdom estimation as once you get past the dinosaur special effects it's actually written and directed very well well, also, let's be honest, you know, 20 years ago, you could look at Caves of Androzani and you could look at the twin, twin dilemma and you could say they both look very different because one is obviously a much more skillful and good looking production than the other. You show those to a modern audience and I, I guarantee you my children will be able to tell the difference between the direction of one or the other because they're both much more dated. So in a way, being further away from Invasion of the Dinosaurs doesn't look any different to Doctor Who and the Silurians or... Um, Terror of the Zygons, or, or or even Battlefield, you know, they they all they all actually look like old studio videotaped multi-camera drama because they all are, and we're far enough away from all of them now that Invasion of the Dinosaurs doesn't stick out in the way that perhaps twenty years ago, where the the dinosaurs were, you know, an obvious point of contention. Although again, that said, I think that the, the pterodactyl when it smashes through the the window pane in episode one is a a, a fearsome and ferocious. Uh, looking thing that it's got a mouth that clacks. Uh, it really does. You feel that it's going to, you know, bite the doctor's arm off. But it is. But as a story, the story is not really about the dinosaurs. Invasion of the dinosaurs isn't about the dinosaurs. The only d dinosaurs are the, are the, you know, the old-fashioned. That's the other great thing about it is that is that the baddies are sort of well-meaning liberals who are trying to do a good thing but actually using awful means with which to do it, which is a terribly interesting thing. She uh, directed a lot of television between uh, 1962 and 1981. Doctor Who was just a small part of her output, even though she had four stories in classic Doctor Who is uh, not a bad track record at, at all. In her later years, as she uh, worked with you on commentaries or as you interviewed her, how did she look back on her time at Doctor Who? Well, she was funny, because she gave you the impression that she was very brusque and she was and she was quite fearsome seeming 
and and she actually wasn't. I, I mean, I corresponded with her for years because I first wrote to her about Quatermass in about 1991. So that's when we first started uh, corresponding, and we did it by letter then. I didn't meet her till many years later when we went to her house for the Invasion of the Dinosaurs commentary, which is, a, which is an interesting one because – Paddy, there's a few BBC people like that. Dick Mills is a bit like it as well, is that they're very sort of garrulous and chatty and uh, fun. And then you turn the microphone off and they suddenly go back to being, oh, I'm, I'm representing the BBC sort of thing. And they get a bit more clipped and it's a bit more formal. And it's a curious transformation. And I, I, Paddy's commentary for dinosaurs was quite a tricky one because you find my questions get longer and longer as her questions get shorter and shorter. Because what I like to do is throw out a a half question and hope they pick up the gauntlet and run with it. And if they don't, I then throw in a bit more and hope they take something from that and run with it. And, and gradually, I was a, and it's because, and yet off Mike Paddy was very, very chatty. Um, and that's, a, and so, she, and, and I think sometimes perhaps when she was working, she, she gave the impression of being brusque because one, she had to be, because she was a woman in a man's world Two, She was having to manage studio floors where loads of things were going on. She spent 10 years working for Rudolf Cartier, let's not forget, who put on these massive productions and, and you know, yelled at her through her earpiece. She had to marshal the hundreds of extras that he'd got and the, the, the ambitious camera setups and all that sort of thing whilst making sure the whole thing ran. So she had to give as good as she got against some quite big characters. So she gave the impression that she was quite brusque, but then she nipped out and bought us all sandwiches and crisps. And she had about 20 cats because she she couldn't bear to see a cat going stray, so she'd take it in. And actually a lot of the last years of her life were spent um, gathering the stray cats of West Yorkshire and, and giving them homes. Um, so she was she had that sort of duality about her was that she uh, was seemed quite brisk, but was actually and she and what she felt about the Doctor Who you got the you know you get the initial impression in a lot of those interviews where she goes wow you know I was just doing this this thing I got an email from a friend first she was tickled pink apparently that people loved her Doctor Who's she was absolutely delighted she'd shown somebody Pyramids of Mars and thought it was really and was terrified that it was going to look awful and thought it stood up really well but but the most thing was she actually really liked having the contact that she got with the world of Doctor Who because she was sort of out of London she was in Yorkshire so it was like it was like a sort of conduit to a world from from before and she no she was secretly very very chuffed about Doctor Who and I think very happy to be part of it. Almost a 20-year career as a director uh, with other television work before that, a pioneer for women directors to follow. Yeah, and also, I mean, we haven't even mentioned um, Pyramids of Mars and Horror of Fang Rock, which I think are surely in, in almost everybody's, you know, top end of their favorite Doctor Who stories, and are certainly, you know, I think acknowledged classics. And they have you know above and beyond the the excellent performances she always got the atmosphere of those they you know they're very serious and the attention to detail i love the things like when um you know the the it's it's not sutex servant of death who turns out to be marcus scarman but we don't know at the end of episode one of um pyramids of mars when he walks out of the sarcophagus and he, he burns holes in the carpet uh and uh, and the smoke comes up and you see those footprints later on it's little attentions to detail like that that just make everything seem a bit um a bit more grown up and a bit spookier and there's some brilliant um shots in uh, in, in pyramids in the studio as well as on location um and horror of fang rock which i know she did under di difficult circumstances because i think uh, tom baker was at the height of his the doctor's an alien and doesn't necessarily have to not snarl at the director <laughs> phase in his show and uh and, and and I think and, and and they'd all decamped to Pebble Mill as well. It was done in Birmingham rather than London. So I think and, and she wasn't over the moon with the script either. Um, and yet got got this got this adventure that's absolutely terrific and really atmospheric. And also, not, yeah, but none of her stories are the same. You know, the, the massacre is quite doom laden as well. But the, you know, they they all the character she gives them is, is the character that's appropriate to the script that she's been given. She doesn't necessarily particularly have a house style, which I always think so. You know, a chameleon of a director, I think, is uh, is, is 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 an impressive quality. Toby, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us some thoughts and memories about Patty Russell, born in 1928, passed away this year. A great. British director and a great Doctor Who director. And a nice lady. This Week in Time Travel is part of the Incomparable Network, where you'll also find these podcasts. 
The Old Movie Club returns with two paranoid films set amid the intrigue of post-war Europe, The Third Man and The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, on our flagship show, The Incomparable. Whenever there's a new episode of Star Trek Discovery, there'll be a review right behind it. Random Trek's Scott McNulty joins Jason Snell on this week's episode, located on the TV podcast feed. All this and more at theincomparable.com. After a break in Halloween Town last week, we are back in Christmas Town this week. Uh, the Christmas Master Plan continues. This time we are picking up where we left off with the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, and then the Snowmen. So that's a pair of Matt Smith Christmas specials right there. Joining me this time, it's from the Verity Podcast, Deb Stanish. Hi, Deb. Hey, Chip. How are you? I'm doing great. With Alyssa gone, it's so good to have somebody else to talk with me about these episodes. Surprise! Ah! Ah, Alyssa! <laughs> Unexpected appearance! Hello! Um, hi, um, partner. Um, good to... What are you doing here? I kicked my family out of the apartment, and now I am back. Yay! All right, so the three of us are going to talk about the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, and the Snowmen, two Christmas specials that could not be more different, I don't think. Oh, you got yes. that one right. But what a great pair of episodes to compare and contrast to. Very, very different. I watched them back to back, and I it was a, like this whiplash sensation. Well, which one did you watch first? Did you watch them in order? Or did did you, like, did you watch, like... Oh, he watched them in order. Hey. Hey. Yeah, no. See, you can't do that. Just, I I know where his neuroses lie. Yeah, I I understand that. You know, Chip, you are a very linear thinker, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But emotionally, it is much better to watch The Snowman first and then end on The Doctor, The Widow, and The Wardrobe. Just, like, pro tip. If you want to end on a down note, sure, that works for me. <laughs> oh, 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 it's going to be one of those podcasts, isn't it? <laughs> I'm so glad I came back for this one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I didn't hate them both. I will say that. But let's start with, if if you'll indulge me, please, in my linearness, uh, let's start with The Doctor and the Widow in the Wardrobe from 2011. Uh, yes. This one aired on Christmas, by the way. It continues in the string of Matt Smith Christmas specials in which the companions are reduced basically to cameo appearances. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. It's perfectly mm-hmm. fine. I did not have a problem with that at all. And actually, and, and I'm going to go on the record, I'm, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to take uh, the first step out the door and say, unequivocally, this is my favorite Christmas episode. What? Of all of them? Of all of them. Okay. I really have to know why you think that, because that is boggling my mind right now. Okay. First of all, if you take the science fiction-y elements out of this and translate that into more of a folktale thing, this is a classic fairy tale. And it's a very classic, very sort of very Englishy feeling of a fairy tale. And it's done in such a way that it, yes, it does get, I, I, I see everybody's criticism with the mawkishness of the motherhood, but emotionally it hits all the beats of a very old time Hollywood Christmas movie, which I, I happen to love and adore. And it's one of the only Christmas specials where we're not dealing, really dealing until the very, very end with the doctor's issues. Let's face it, almost every single Christmas special that we have is all about the Doctor's issues. And this one is just pure fantasy. It is the Doctor is Mary Poppins and is the Doctor doing something joyous and outside of himself. And it just it feels like Christmas. I would watch this at Christmas, even if I wasn't a Doctor Who fan, because it hits all of those beats of a very classic Christmassy movie, a classic Christmas fairy tale. And like I said, if you took if you took the the miners out, which I'm and, and I agree that like they were criminally underused uh, guest appearances on this. And, and I, I think they could have been any actors. I wish that they had done something more with those characters or utilized them else. Um, Arabella Weir and oh, who was the other? Droxel V. 
Vingar and Billis, Bill Bailey, yes. Paul Baisley, and Eric Barrow. Yes, that's it. Bailey, I was thinking of. Okay. If you, if I wish they had used them differently, but if you had, say you took those out and made them woodsmen and you know there wasn't a spaceship it was a carriage or it was a wagon or something this could have been this could have been such a classic fairy tale and it just it hits hits me emotionally i watched it again today and i still cried at the end because we get a happy ending how often do you get happy endings in doctor who christmas specials mm. it's really <laughs> really rare and this one just we have tears much like we did in the snowman but these are happy tears and to have those to have those happy tears at christmas is let's face it it's kind of unusual for doctor who and it and it it hit me in the feels see you say all of that and that sounds like a lovely wonderful christmas special that i would have loved to seen like lean harder into those elements of the story and really lean into the fairy taleness of this entire story. I think for me, I sort of get pulled out by some of the ways that they insert the more science fiction tropes into Mm. the story. I think, you know, the fact that they use those three great guests and they're kind of awkwardly tromping about in that armor and they're about to burn the whole forest down with acid and that kind of stuff does throw me a little bit in ways that usually it doesn't with Mm -hmm. sci-fi. And I think for me also, I I find some of the the mawkishness with how they address motherhood in this episode to be sort of a little overwhelming. Uh, As a mom, it didn't at all. It really, really (laughs) didn't because... I, you know, I think as a parent, we can all tap into sort of this mama papa bear feeling and like when she did that when she started walking that thing which is ridiculous i grant you but i also give you curse of the black spot yes dude can can fly a spaceship after like piloting a ship or Rory like, uh driving a motorcycle in yeah. let's kill hitler yeah. because it's so just that, that kind point, of episode like, which, that yeah that was a little ridiculous but that emotion like i'm coming to get you i am going to fix this like that that taps into a very primal thing as a parent that yes you will you will go through acid rain to protect your children um and it was nice to see a mom for a change because we always like everything's a dad, you know, it's always these dad stories in Doctor Who. And so to have a mom have a chance to be a very pragmatic heroine and, and Madge is amazing and wonderful and one of my favorite characters in Doctor Who. Um, it, it, I guess, and a lot of moms that I've talked to, I know on our podcast, Tansy kind of feels the same way. We are such huge defenders of this story, mm-hmm. but I can see. And I'm sorry, I completely interrupted you, but that's like one of my. Mm. No, no, because yeah, that that's the definitely... kind of thing that kind of makes me like, oh, everybody's like, oh, motherhood, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yes, but it's so true. It's that's so that, true. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear hear you say that because when I first saw this uh, back in 2011, and uh, and again when I saw it when I saw it this time, I felt like there was a lot of, for want of a better term, you know, there was. I felt like there was a lot of essentialism going on. That moms are like this. Boys and mm-hmm. men are like this, and girls and women are like this. It didn't sit well with me, and mm-hmm. and I and I was almost expecting you to have the same sort of this this feels stereotypical kind of reaction. It does feel a little stereotypical, but it also I you know I think I think there's this thing with feminism that we have to abandon all of these things that make us women at, at times, like it's. You, you, there's there's sort of this um, there's this wonderful thing that's going around and saying you know I will defend women who are sporty and I will defend women who wear pink and I will defend you know what I mean so mm-hmm. it's it's motherhood and bearing of children is an intrinsic part of a lot of women's lives and it's a very it's not every woman and not every woman is called to motherhood please do not take this because there's many many people out there for this is not a good choice for them um i don't think that's something that that we that is our right to write off for people that do find that is a very primal experience. So while yes, I agree that it is, it, it can be read one way. I also think in another way, it is, it is very essential for a lot of women and to see that represented in such a way that wasn't, 
it wasn't evil. We get a lot of evil moms. Do you know what I mean? But to see mm-hmm. it as as very nurturing at Christmas, which is sort of really an essential part of the Christmas story, if you're coming at this from a Christian perspective, it was kind of refreshing because we don't get that a lot in Doctor Who. So while I agree that it did buy into a lot of certain stereotypes, I don't think that you can necessarily always throw out the root of those stereotypes in, you know, in claiming your feminism, making you a strong woman. Um, it, it, you know, it's not a battle of either or, you know, women, women contain multitudes and parenting and motherhood is one of those multitudes for a lot of women. So to see that represented in a way that, yes, was sort of um, buying into those stereotypes in, in one sense, but also kind of celebrating it in another way. Yeah, I think that for me, half of it worked and half of it sort of didn't in that I found its portrayal of motherhood for the most part, very utterly convincing that Mm -hmm. Madge is a character who's both trying very hard to be a good mother and is a very good mother, but is also struggling and flawed in some ways. You know, she's through the entirety of this story dealing with the incredibly hard uh, fact that she's going to have to tell her children that their father is dead and not really knowing how to do it and not really coping with it very well. Because, you know, there's that lovely scene between her and the doctor where she admits she's basically upset and angry and snapping at the children a lot because she can't bear how happy they are mm-hmm. knowing that she's going to have to give this incredibly painful and difficult news to them. And I think those scenes of motherhood, like, The way they leaned into that aspect of it really, for me, made a really big impact because that's, you know, that's motherhood as I saw it from my mother, my grandmother and her mother of trying so hard to do what you can for your children and still being flawed and still trying to figure out how do I do things that are probably going to be terrible that hurt my children in some ways? How do I help them come to terms with the world? I think where I sort of got lost was the spaceship scene uh, Mm -hmm. where there's discussion of, you know, only she is qualified to do it because, you know, I think one of the things that I struggle with is there are so many people who that's, that's the part of the essentialism that, bothered me more than anything, that it was only if you have been a mother that you are qualified to have these burdens, because there's so many people who have been mothers to me that are not mothers biologically um, and wouldn't or couldn't be, Um, that that part sort of made me sort of twinge and feel a little guilty of, oh, I I see where you're trying to be uplifting and support moms, but I know so many who this this would hurt them to, to watch this of... And, and so that's, that's, that's where it lost me, but it won me back with the ending that yeah. what mattered most was how they were going to rebuild their family and how she was going to be with her children and really in, you know, and encourage the doctor to seek out his own family, you know, the people he was leaving behind. Um, right. So that, that's where it won me back again. That's, that's where my heart really sang. It was in those final moments of the episode. You know, it's interesting that you read it like that because I I didn't read it as you had to have been a mother more than you had to have been capable of being a mother, which also Mm -hmm. in in and of itself is problematic. Um, But because when they look at the daughter, you know, she's like, she's strong, but she's not ready yet. She's not strong enough yet. Mm -hmm. So I didn't take it as somebody who's actually have given birth, but I guess the capability of giving birth or, and, and, and that is problematic. I agree a hundred percent, but you know, the idea that, you know, women should not be reduced to birth givers, but I also don't think that you can discount, discount that either. Do you know what I mean? I don't think we need to throw throw that out um, because we don't want to be reduced to that. I think there needs to be a strike a happy medium, but yeah, the, the scenes when she is the thing that, you know, the thing, the most painful thing of home that draw is these images of her husband. Like that's the part where I just start, like I start to get a little weepy when she's like, don't make me watch him die. And like the emotion of that. And And the kids looking on at the same time and trying to make sense of what they're seeing in her. But then to have that turn around and to get a happy ending out of that was like, am I watching Doctor Who? This doesn't happen (laughs) at Christmas. You know, I need to have the parents. I need (sighs) to have the Titanic crashing and everybody dying horribly. Like, what even is this? (laughs) 
So, yeah. The, that's, and it was, oh, my God, it's so sentimental. But, you know, at Christmas, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Like, if I'm going to sit down and watch, you know, a Christmas movie or something, I will watch It's a Wonderful Life. Or I will watch something <laughs> that is is sentimental and just makes me cry. And I know I'm being manipulated and I'm OK with it. I'm totally for sentimentality at Christmas. That leads me to ask this question, because... Unless people follow you really closely on Twitter, Deb, they might not know that your husband is quite the aficionado of Hallmark specials. Oh my is god, th- it's so true. Is <laughs> watching this an episode <laughs> is this an episode of Doctor Who that he can enjoy? I don't think so. Only because my husband does not have the genre gene in his bones. This is this is the man, and I love him dearly, and literally I walked in the house tonight or being gone all day, and he was watching a Hallmark movie that had Harry Connick Jr. in it for some reason, and Lyle Lovett, hmm. I don't even know. And I think there was another country mu- music star that was an angel, but anyway... Um, he's the person that watched Pirates of the Caribbean and thought, well, that wasn't very realistic, and I'm like, no... No. It really wasn't. It wasn't supposed to be. So I think if it were the fairy tale elements were there and you didn't have the sci-fi elements there, he would have been all over this. But because of those sci-fi elements that threw you out, Alyssa, they would throw my husband out as well because it is it is not his jam. And I don't he would look at that and be like, Yeah, that's not very realistic. I'm like, no, honey, you're absolutely right. It's not. Can but. I put uh, Matt Smith under the microscope for a bit? Sure. Uh the sort of shorthand for him has frequently been ancient guy in younger man's body. But that gets flipped a lot in this episode in particular. He spends like two thirds of the episode being a toddler in a man's body. And then he has his moments with Madge uh, where he gets serious and sad and looks looks old. What did you all think of Matt's performance in this episode? I think he was sort of the classic Christmas trickster, that he really came in to shake up the family and make them try to be happy again. Oh my God, he's the cat in the hat. Oh God, that's not the one I would have gone for first. I would have gone for the ghost of Christmas present in Christmas Carol, but sure, let's go with cat in the hat. (laughs) So... You know, he's, see, I was leaning more towards a cross between Willy Wonka and Mary Poppins. I'd go for that. I'd go for that. Uh, you know, I think he's he's very much leaning like this is this is Matt Smith at sort of the height of which I really I I like him that he is engaging that he is out there that he is fun that he is not as morose as he will be in some later stories. Um, And he is just fully living that enjoyment of being, you know, 2000 year old in a child's body of, you know, being this incredibly happy go lucky person and trying to make things happy and get other people to see the joy that he sees in the world. Um, And still having those moments of, yeah, very wise ancient alien kind of person in that body. So I, this is this is the height of which I think he's he's fun and interesting. Definitely. And I think it's he is fulfilling the promise that we saw in the ninth doctor when he talked to Rose about, you know, leaving the bicycle under the Christmas tree when she was 12 sort of thing, yes. um, because he's not he's not saving the world. He's he's very much trying to just bring joy to these people's lives. I mean, these are the embodiment of the, you know, 3 a.m. on the street corner crowd that he talked about and how amazing they are. There's there's nothing here that is going to there's no danger. I mean, they fall into danger, but the danger is not present. The danger is not the motivating factor for him. It's there's nothing attacking the world. It's not an adventure that he is on for his own self-interest. This is a completely selfless act on his part to make people happy, which is it, it's so Christmassy. Do you know what I mean? It's it's they fall into this uh, sort of peril as they go along. But to have him cavorting around and just saying, isn't it cold? Isn't it cold? There's lemonade on tap mm-hmm. sort of thing. I mean, he is he is is a toddler living out his giving his dream to other people and just enjoying their reaction to it and trying to make this a good Christmas for no other reason other than he can. 
it's a bit much for me. That may be a function more of the pacing of the episode than to his performance as such. I thought that there was just a, a few too many I knows about all mm. of the all of the other all the gimmicky stuff. Similarly, why I thought, do you hate Christmas, Chip? Why do you hate joy? Why uh, do you hate fun? Why do you humbug. hate joy? <laughs> do I need to get an intervention? Do three of us need to dress up as the ghost of past, present, and future Christmas? That would disturb me greatly. Um, let the let the caretaker live. Just let him live. It's it's just a little much. Uh, I also I also think that uh, the wandering in the forest takes a little bit too much time. But it's it's very it's mythical. Pretty. It's very it's it's very mythical. It's very fairy tale. So. I can I can see why these choices are made. I just it's slapstick. That's the word that I was searching for that was eluding me. There is a certain point at which uh, Matt Smith slapstick becomes slightly too much for me. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because that since I'm I've been I'm been, I've been doing nothing but watching Doctor Who Christmas specials so far. I've had four years worth of RTD and David Tennant Christmas specials and then a Christmas Carol where Matt Smith is relatively reined in, except when he's uh, bouncing up and down on young Catherine's bed. So I haven't seen all of the episodes in between to sort of settle me into this. Uh, This was kind of like a double shot of espresso all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It's definitely an anomaly. I think if you look at the Christmas specials as a whole and try to think of them as as sort of a cohesive unit, this one sticks out completely because even though uh, the Christmas Carol sort of has happy ending, you still have the woman in the fridge who's going to die at the end of 24 Mm -hmm. hours. You know what I mean? Like there's still some inherent tragedy built into that one, Um, even though people say that is the most Christmassy one of all because you have that redemption. This one, everybody lives. I mean, this is the doctor dances all over again. Everybody lives. Everybody gets their happy ending, even the doctor. It's like mm-hmm. that boggles my mind every single time I think of this story because you don't get those. Those are very rare stories in Doctor Who. Very and, rare. And not only that, you get the return home, which is such a classic Christmas story thing to do. Yes. That in the end, no matter what barriers or obstacles that you face, Everybody goes home for Christmas. And you're always welcome. Yes. And the door will always open for you, even if your best friend is going to shoot you a little bit with a water pistol because you've, you know, not been for there for the previous few Christmases. But he kind of deserved it at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Have we changed your mind at all, Chip? Even a little bit? Well, I I, I, I was actually kind of surprised that... Uh, you know, I, I made my little opening shot there, and then it sounded for a moment there like Alyssa was actually going to go more negative than I had been. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I just enjoy a fight. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm just here to start things. I don't know if I gave you the wrong agitator. impression. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You're an agitator. I am. I, I'm, I'm so glad you made it in for this one, Alyssa. Um, it's I don't I, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Well, then let's go to The Snowmen, which is a little bit more of a slightly depressing story, even if it ends on a kind of upbeat note. Yeah, if we went from uh, your co-host, Deb, likes to call David Tennant's doctor the Tigger Doctor. We had the Tigger Doctor in this previous episode. And then we come to The Snowmen. Yes, we do. Wow. There's a lot of man pain in this one. So much man pain. So I just rewatched this episode before we started recording. And I forgot how happy this episode actually makes me feel, weirdly, that there's so much moroseness coming from the doctor that like he I'm not really here for him or what's going on. Like he's bringing the episode down. I'm really here for Clara because Mm -hmm. she's uplifting this entire episode. And I think what gets me about this episode is her joy and her wonder at discovering new things, even the scary ones, the terrifying ones. And, you know, maybe I'm just really connecting with her in that moment because, you know, for the first 10 minutes or so that she meets the doctor, she's really just there to start 
fights, you know? She's just there for the fight between mm-hmm. Strax and the Doctor and the Memory Worm. And she's just there to give the Doctor a run for his money and to poke fun at him. Um, and she really makes this episode for me because there is so much wonder and delight and joy in what would otherwise be an unbearably grim episode uh, that it just it leaves me feeling all warm and happy inside. One of the things I love about it is that you're right. When when the episode starts, man pain doctor all the way. And throughout the episode, you see Matt Smith get lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. And even after the pain of uh, Clara's death, spoiler, she dies at the end. Even after that pain, you know, when he sees the gravestone and sees the full name and realizes that there is a mystery with all of the, you know, the issues that people may have had with the impossible girl as a plot rather than a character kind of stuff that followed here. Uh, by the end of the episode, he's got his joie de vivre again. And yeah. I like I, I love seeing that progression. It's like the sun slowly coming out. Yeah, I had watched this one um Yesterday, I think I sat down and watched it for the first time, probably since it aired. And it's funny because uh, this was the very first episode we discussed on Verity. This was our inaugural Verity episode. And I had forgotten how much I enjoyed it because so much of my impression of this episode is sort of bitterness and regret that we didn't get this Clara um, and said we went a much more traditional route. And then we had the whole Impossible Girl mystery, which which wore on me the longer it went on. Um, because Victoria and Clara was a delight. I love the, mm-hmm. the, the code switching of the accents was great. I love that she just was so incredibly clever and unfazed. And in 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 a lot of ways, she reminded me, and again, I, as I said in the beginning of this episode, the compare and contrasting of these two, of of these two episodes that we're discussing tonight. Um, Madge was also incredibly unfazed by things, and she was very matter of fact. And Clara was a lot like that too. That she was presented with these wonderful things, and she questioned them, and she, you know, she didn't sort of was puzzled, but she just was kind of kept poking at it until she felt that her answer, she was answered in a way that made her happy. Um, I just, I enjoyed this character so much. And yes, you know, Clara's Clara, Clara through the ages, but the idea of having a Victorian woman who is dealing with class issues and dealing with all these other things and just still having that brightness at that time and place would have been really, really Mm -hmm. interesting to do rather than going the traditional, you know, 21st century woman from London or wherever. The um, moment that delighted me so much was when uh, they're doing the slapstick with the memory worm. And yes. uh, and the line that just slays me every time is when um, the doctor snaps back at Clara and says, this is not funny. And she says, I, I know what's going to happen next. And yes, it is that <laughs> I know what's going to happen next as just the hearts in my eyes. Yeah. She was delightful. The only, you know what my big beef with this episode is, and this is my beef with every Christmas period doctor who episode ever. And it was, um, the next doctor is the same. These women are running around in the snow without coats on. Yes. They don't even look cold. They don't even yes. look cold. Their bosoms are heaving. They might have some sort of little decorative shawl on, but they're not even shivering. Like I was 65 degrees out today and I'm wearing a fleece and I was cold at times when the sun went in. Like, come on. Like, put a shawl on or so put a cape. A cape would be good. Like anything. Let's let's be a little more realistic. The snow is falling. You're not standing out there in short sleeves. Yes. With heaving bosoms and not being chilled. And and look, I, I love Clara and uh, Jenna Coleman as much as the next not straight oh, person Louise. does, but Je- Jenna Louise Coleman. Jenna Louise Coleman. Yeah. But uh, my God, there was a disproportionate amount of heaving bosoms uh, in this story. <laughs> yeah, there was the one lingering shot when she starts to oh, unbutton her top in the in in the carriage as she was yes. changing personas. That was a little. That's I, I looked at it this time. I'm like, oh. Well, mm-hmm. that's a little suggestive, isn't it? It's just a little bit. Just a, little a bit. bit. Yeah. 
So wardrobe aside, it was a delightful episode. And and mm-hmm. the, the Easter eggs in this were the thing that I noticed the most this time around. Like the yes. little the little things that they they drop throughout about the great intelligence, about uh, the code word, the pond, and that whole scene between Clara and Madame Vastra with the one word, the one word thing is just this is just a clever episode. It's a very, very clever episode. And I just I remember being riveted by that scene where you have to reduce your truth to one word. And it is true. I mean, you can really, really hide a lot of things in a lot of verbiage, as much as I'm doing right now as I'm talking. Um, <laughs> but to be able to have to do that in one word is, is an incredibly clever premise. And the both of them acted the heck out of that scene. Well, they do those scenes so well because they do it again with the regeneration from Matt Smith to Peter Capaldi, where they have that confrontation again uh, mm. about what it really means to be a friend of the doctor. Um, and gosh, those two actresses, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, Neve McIntosh um, and Jenna are just, they do that type of scene so well together that they are two women who know that especially in the second scene know uh the doctor very well but have very different interpretations of what it means to be a friend with him but they're also respecting each other to a, a really great degree and i you know i love seeing companions talking to each other like mm-hmm. that um and i'm going to include vaster as a companion and people can fight me on that but like Seeing companions talk to each other about what it means to be friends with the doctor, to talk about the experiences they have, to treat each other with respect and as equals, even as they are fighting and disagreeing with it, is just a really rare but wonderful moment to have in Doctor Who. Um, And just two such incredibly talented actresses to pull that off and make it compelling even the second time around. That's right. That's right. Um, It's not exactly a Christmassy episode. It just happens to be happening at Christmas, and there is snow involved. So yeah, it's, but there's a TARDIS in the clouds, so it's pretty. That's it all I need pretty. for Christmas episodes, <laughs> that, they, that they be pretty. <laughs> um, and we had the we had the big surprise uh, five episodes previous when uh, Jenna Coleman made an unexpected appearance in Asylum of the Daleks. So uh, people who were paying attention and knew about her future casting knew that there was a mystery involved. But this is such a showcase for the for the actress, uh, even mm-hmm. though even though it even though it's not a showcase for the Clara that we're going to see for the next uh, eight episodes or so. Um, paired with Matt Smith, but uh, between that and the the hijinks with the Paternoster gang, um, I just think that this is loads and loads of fun. And I'm not, I, I preferred it to the Doctor, the Widow, the Wardrobe because the lyrical fairy taleness. Why why have that when you have lots of running and jumping and banter and fun? i you know something i the clara's death was just so sad i mean it really was sad and yes it's it's redeemed a little bit at the end but you're still going through that Uh, not really i mean that family lost somebody that was really important to them and i think that gets glossed over a little bit you know where oh but she's not really dead it's a mystery to solve hoorah let's move on to the same thing i mean here's you know clearly um the captain was in love with her or infatuated with her or just, you know, completely besotted with her. The children adored her. You know, she was well liked by the other staff. Her loss had an impact mm-hmm. on that family. But the camera so, pulls away from them very quickly so that right. we can have our happy little there's a mystery to solve right. and she's still out there moment. Yeah. But yeah. it's, you know, it's still it's it's not happy. Those children will... It, it, we have the exact opposite of what we had in the Doctor of the Wood of the Wardrobe, where Madge did not want their father's death to taint Christmas. And here we have a family that forever will be, Christmas will be tainted for them mm-hmm. by Clara's death, the, the snowman attack, the, the crazy, you know, ice governess thing. So it's almost like, yeah, this is, this is the flip side of that coin that Madge was trying to, was trying to prevent for Christmas in her own life. And this family is, is really, devastated so you know that sadness lingers i think for me and and 
It didn't it didn't really feel Christmassy other than they said it's Christmas Eve and now it's Christmas Day. Hurrah. And there's snow. Um, But as a showcase for this character and this actors and for setting up that arc. Yes, it was done extremely well. I think one of the upsides and the downsides to the sort of impossible girl arc is that they make the characters that Clara Oswald is beforehand very compelling and unique in their own right that it isn't just clones of one Clara that Oswin Oswald uh, and Clara Oswin Oswald as the uh girl who gets turned into a Dalek and uh, the Victorian governess are both very compelling characters that are very different from the Clara who's ultimately going to end up being the companion. And they live their own lives and they die their own deaths. And those on their own are very compelling and sad. And it shows just sort of the range that Jenna Louise Coleman has as an actress to really be able to create all of those different unique characters. But it also sort of kind of leaves a sourness when we do finally get there because there's these two women who have lived and died and, you know, it, it very much at the end of Snowman, I do feel that like, yeah, her her death is sort of being minimized and brushed under the rug a little bit because you have to get to the next one. You have to get right. to the next girl. Um, so yeah. it's, it, it's and a there's part tricky of it. thing. There's part of it that feels a little bit like a cheat, too, because we yes. had, you know, the souffle girl who was so interesting as a Dalek. I mean, that is a really, really interesting character study right there. And then you have this Victorian governess slash barmaid. And it, the, the the conversation is it would be too difficult to have a companion who is not a contemporary. So here's a way <sighs> that we can give you a companion who's not a contemporary because then we don't have to worry about all that really inconvenient backstory stuff and the expensive sets visiting their home world or what, whatever the excuse is that they have for doing that. So they give you a glimpse of something really cool and interesting that we don't get. Yes. And I think that's... That to me, and that's sort of why this episode has a, that little bit of a tinge to it that that character was so interesting and cool. And I understand it's the same person, but it just felt like we were denied something that could have been different than what we've had previously and what we've had since. And, and, and I really, really like Clara. She is one of my favorite companions, Mm -hmm. but this episode sort of makes the future iterations of Clara pale a little bit in comparison it's like clara is a fantastic companion more for what the actress puts into it than what the scripts actually give her from time to time yeah i can't disagree with that yeah that's that's very very true Mm -hmm. um one last question i wanted to put to y'all i don't remember the exact sequence of events but i do believe that this episode was being put together around the same time that the rumors may have been circulating that the web of fear was going to be found. Oh, yeah. That so rings let's a bell talk about me. let's talk about the great intelligence a little bit and all of these callbacks to episodes that I think at the time were, you know, deep, deep, deep cuts. Yeah. If, if mm-hmm. there's no way that this is a coincidence, there's no way. You do not do the little thing with the subway map, 1962 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Like you just don't do that unless you're going to be dropping something big. It is just it's too obscure. It's reaching too far back into to have that done randomly. Like you cannot sell me that sauce because I'm not going <laughs> to buy that sauce. Yeah, that it, it seems to me like a, a, they knew they were setting it up and it just it worked wonderfully. Yeah, I think, you know, I was one of those people that didn't know anything about the Web of Fear or the Great Intelligence before I watched this episode. I had to, you know, learn about that all afterwards. But now when I went back and watched it today, I was looking for all of those little references. Uh, And it was just really fun to see that, to get that and go, they're talking about that episode. It's great. Um, And yeah, I think that does... I does feel to me like that had to have been 
deliberate, um, if only because if there's one thing we know about uh, everyone who works to create Doctor Who is that they're all trolls and they all delight in playing these sorts of little pranks on people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was the Christmas 2012 episode and The Web of Fear was released to iTunes in October of 2013. So they had to ha- they had to know they had to they know. had to there was time they had to have time to restore that and to, to clean it up and do what they needed to do so yeah they they were sitting on that one and rubbing their hands in glee thinking mm. this is going to be amazing <laughs> what a fear drops but absent that <laughs> does the does the threat does the villain work on its own you know in watching this again i you know i'm going and i was i was making some notes on my phone because i was not near a computer or paper um and one of the things i jotted down is you know here we have another sad little boy who grew up to be a bitter old man like it's very similar to the christmas carol to me and i thought it just didn't seem as original mm-hmm. um that's the one part of this story that I just I think is a little weak. The motivation there, do you know what I mean? It, because yeah. it's you have you kind of have just a, a boy who you don't even see him being bullied. You just kind of see him being ignored and being a little lonely. And and he grows up to be this like insane megalomaniac who hooks up with some psychic snow and is going to burn the world. Like mm, that's a little extreme, a little extra. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's. As a villain, he was very compelling. Just the, you know, the demeanor of the actor, the presentation of the actor, and it, and it was an interesting mystery. Um, but ultimately, it's not one of my favorite Christmas villains. I also think the Great Intelligence was one of those villains. I remember being very confused um, watching this episode about what exactly it was. And why I should be afraid of it. Like, I couldn't mm-hmm. figure out exactly what the villain was. And I was, I remember looking up on Wikipedia what the great intelligence was as like a villain in previous Doctor Who episodes going, is this going to give me context? Is this going to help explain this? Because I don't know really what what's going on here and why I should be afraid of this character. I felt like it was not really made clear to new viewers who had never seen the great intelligence before why this should be something that was scary or even really why it was working what was what exactly was going on in that episode i think it's a little confusing without that prior context um because i didn't make it through the episode without looking it up on wikipedia um and i still feel like i understand and enjoy it better now that i have seen the web of fear yeah Definitely, without the context, it doesn't come across as creepy or as scary. No, it's Ian McKellen in a snow globe. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And it's snow. It's like even the snowmen. Yeah. yeah, they were a little scary with the teeth and everything, but you know, it's it's snow. It's, snow. <laughs> it's really yeah. it's snow. It's hard to be super scared of snow. Even snow with teeth. Yeah. Hey, but the the governess, the ice governess, was super cool. That was very good. That, that was, was very good. well done. I like that. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure in the end that she made a whole lot of sense, but she she did look she did look kind of cool. She sounded kind of creepy, and I really was thrown for a loop the first time I watched this when she pulled Clara out of the TARDIS and uh, ended yes it ended the companion's voyage. Uh, it does seem kind of like a weak a weak premise that like your plans to take over the world are relying on the fact that, you know, a governess fell into a pond and froze to death. Yeah. You know, it's just that kind of, you know, it's one of those stories. If you poke at it too hard, it kind of all falls apart. But if you just yeah. skate across the, the surface, it's clever. It's fun. It's, it's the banter. Strax is amazing. Like I love Strax so much. Um, <laughs> he just is funny and always provides great comic relief. So yeah. And the whole Sherlock Holmes thing was very, very entertaining at the time because you have to yes. remember this was sort of the peak of Sherlock and actually the music is, is it's a is take off of the Sherlock theme. Yeah. Yep. Of yep. Moffat and Gatiss's Sherlock, BBC Sherlock. So, like, all of that just, like, delighted me at the time watching it. So, yeah, but it's one of those stories, you know, it's it's, it's going to crumble pretty hard if you poke at it too much. Mm. Yep. So, 
Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, and the Snowmen. We liked them. We liked yeah, them. Yeah, liked them. Some of some of us liked them more than others. Some of them have heart. Some of us have hearts in their eyes. Some of us say that the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe is their favorite Christmas special of them all. Of ever. <laughs> That's why I jumped on it to talk about this one because it gets maligned. It gets very maligned. Unjustly, but I adore so, huh? it. Unjustly <laughs> maligned, even I would say. But no, I I adore it, and I would I would watch it willingly at Christmas every year. Well, unfortunately, we can't have the same Christmas special every year, which means that we have to talk next time uh, for our Christmas master plan about. It's going to be a little while from now, but we will be covering Time of the Doctor and Last Christmas. It'll be goodbye to the 11th Doctor and then goodbye not to Clara. Um, And hello, Santa Claus. Party a minute in those episodes, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Deb, thank you so much for joining us uh, as we talked about these two episodes. That was my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. I will will argue with you guys any day of the week. That's uh, great news for me. <laughs> you can find Deb on the Verity Podcast at Verity Podcast or VerityPodcast.com, where she and five other smart and feisty co-hosts are just breaking new ground for Doctor Who podcasting every darn week. Too kind. Thank you for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. Thanks to Alyssa for helicoptering in at the last minute. Thanks to Deb Stanish and Toby Hado. You can find This Week in Time Travel on Facebook by name, and we're on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. Our original music is by Christopher Bree. Our logo was designed by David J. Lore, and you'll find the lemonade in the third tab. I know. Alyssa and I will talk to you next week on This Week in Time Travel. <laughs>